Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see so many of you here this evening, despite the what seems like persistently inclement weather. Um, I uh, want to remind all of you that if you have not yet seen the Armory Show at 100, um, a spectacular exhibition on the second floor of our institution featuring more than 100 works from the original Armory Show that introduced New York to modern art. Uh, I urge you to see it as quickly as possible. Return during museum hours. It closes this Sunday. I also want to encourage any of you who is in the audience this evening and is not yet a member of the New York Historical Society to join. My colleagues will be happy to help you on your way out this evening. Tonight's program, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Fight for Black Equality, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their exceedingly generous support, which allows us to bring so many great historians and writers uh, to this auditorium. I want to recognize one of our great trustees in the audience this evening, Dr. James Basker, and thank him uh, for all the wonderful work that he and our, all of our trustees do on behalf of this great institution. Thank you, Jim. Um, I also want to recognize uh, Jacqueline Adams and other members of our Frederick Douglass Council in attendance tonight, and thank you for your great support of our work. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach the microphones to my left and to my right in those aisles. We ask you to do that so that the speakers on stage can hear your questions, and the audience can as well. Uh, following the program, books by our speakers will be available for purchase in our museum store. However, there will not be a book signing this evening. We are really thrilled to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, David Levering Lewis. Dr. Lewis is one of the country's most distinguished historians on the civil rights movement. He joined New York University's faculty in September 2003, where he served as Julius Silver University professor and professor of history. He's also taught at the University of Notre Dame, Howard University, University of California, San Diego, and Harvard University. Dr. Lewis was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama in February 2010. He's the award-winning author of many books, including King, A Critical Biography, An Essential Exploration of the Life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and a two-part biography of W.E.B. Du Bois, which earned him the Bancroft Prize, the Francis Parkman Prize, and two Pulitzer Prizes in biography. Our moderator this evening is Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, a research division of the New York Public Library. Dr. Muhammad is a former associate professor of history at Indiana University, his book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Ur Urban America, won the 2011 John Hope Franklin Best Book Award in American Studies. He served as associate editor of the Journal of American History, and his work 
has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, and Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As always this evening, I'd like to ask uh, all of you to make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Good evening. Uh, yes, good evening. Yes. <laughs> well, it does feel a bit like deja vu. It is that, isn't it? We, we were here uh, about a year ago to talk about uh, Dr. King and uh, the first critical biography. Something I didn't know at the time, shame on me, was that uh, the former curator of the Schomburg, Dr. Lawrence Reddick, had not only been a friend of Dr. King, but had also written the first biography. Yes, that's, that's true. <clears throat> and his biography was, uh, I think, uh, more internalized than mine. I did not know uh, Martin Luther King. I met him very briefly as an undergraduate. Uh, <clears throat> I met him through uh, his sources and uh, uh, through interviews. Uh, Lawrence Reddick, however, I think was part of the SCLC movement, but he was also felicitously a first-rate academic, and so he brought the two uh, modalities together, I think, quite, uh, quite handily, and I benefited, I think, therefore, from it. So speaking of first-rate uh, academics and intellectuals, brings us to, uh, in this way, the man of the hour, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. So tell us just briefly what brought you to Du Bois? What was the intellectual journey uh, that you landed on spending, what, 20 years of your life on two volumes? Um, I would say about 15. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take five. Right. <laughs> um, well, um, <clears throat> it was an obvious topic. I think anyone, uh, any credentialed historian would have wondered why uh, there hadn't been a full-bore appreciation of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, <clears throat> the answer partly, of course, was that the, the accessibility of his uh, enormous uh, archive, uh, one of the largest collections of letters, papers, uh, memorabilia, the rest of it, I think, uh, extant. Uh, so that was problematic, but uh, he had been—he had become a pariah, hadn't he? He had uh, been uh, uh, dispatched to the uh, American Gulag of the Smith Act uh, time. Uh, he was a communist. Uh, <clears throat> well, that intrigued me because uh, I had the uh, unhappy insensibility that being a communist was not necessarily fatal to uh, one's uh, value to the republic. That was an insensible decision. <laughs> um, but I suppose really it was because nobody had done it. Mm -hmm. And I was quite enterprising. I got there before everybody else. Uh, I was at the uh, door of the University of Massachusetts the day the collection became accessible. And I stayed there until uh, I had read everything I, I could. There's also another reason, uh, and I guess this is the third reason, and that is that uh, I intuited that uh, Du Bois's uh, strengths and weaknesses, his, um, uh, his insightfulness, 
and the lack thereof were so significant to uh, the American experience in which we find ourselves um, torn, torn between uh, a view that everyone deserves a chance and that society should be organized in such a way that that is empowered and facilitated. And then the other point of view that uh, the point of uh, the American promise is to get rich and that anything that stands in the way of uh, enrichment uh, should be uh, eliminated. And so the consequence of that is that we, there's a yin-yang in our history between uh, democracy uh, and uh, plutocracy. And I thought that Du Bois's critique of democracy and plutocracy uh, in this long life, 95, almost all lucid years of 16 books and God knows how many editorials and op-eds, his reactions and critiques and the criticisms of him and the praise of him would give you a kind of tableau of the American possibilities and the American probabilities and the, uh, uh, the challenges uh, yet to be met and those that have been met. So it was a, a, a wonderful experience uh, living, living with him and living with uh, uh, the surviving population of, uh, mm. of members of the Communist Party who now are successful uh, real estate brokers and <laughs> with... Uh, uh, with academics who, uh, or leaders, I should say, of the civil rights community who, in Du Bois's need for support and defense, uh, were, were silent. Uh, and uh, with um, uh, the, the people uh, who uh, he loved and who loved him. Uh, he was an extraordinarily um, um, sensitive man, though no one would have guessed it. Uh, uh, who did not know him well. So I'm curious, uh, most of us think about the civil rights movement, and that us is a very generous us, not the very erudite uh, community of New York Historical Society audience members. But most of us think of the civil rights movement as a kind of Southern story that begins in, at best the 1940s, as opposed to, say, Brown in 1954. And I want to I want to play with that chronology because you know we we've, we've come here to talk about sort of the struggle for black equality and that's sort of what people think of when uh, when they hear those terms. We're in the 50th of the civil rights movement, but in many ways, Du Bois is a generation apart from the movement. And one of the things that I was struck by in revisiting the second volume is that he's really 70 years old right at the dawn of the March on Washington movement that is the first go-round uh, led by A. Philip Randolph. In 1940, you mean? In 1940. Thereabouts, yes. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so I just, mm -hmm. I just want to play with that generational context because it, it seems to me that he never quite fits in. Does he ever quite fit into the swirl of civil rights activism? Is it a generational thing? Maybe I should pose it as a question rather than an ideological thing. Is Du Bois wedded to a certain set of principles that emerge at a point in time, and you can tell us when that is, that puts him at odds, even from the very beginning mm. of the civil rights movement? Mm. 
You know, I, I had a, a number of quotes in my uh, vest pocket, uh, but I find I left them uh, as I... <laughs> I have a few for left, you. Uh, <laughs> as, as I left uh, the apartment. Uh, but, but to uh, uh, bookend uh, that, uh, that query of yours, I think, if I can remember them. And one is a, uh, a statement made in the, one of the earliest books, of course, the book that we all know so well, The Souls of Black Folk, uh, in which Du Bois said that... Um, that the plight of a poor man in a land of dollars is a great hardship, but the plight of a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardship. And that's what he says in 2003. In uh, 1903. And then, no, I'm going to go to uh, October 1961, uh, mm -hmm. when Du Bois takes his leave of us, uh, self-expatriates to Ghana, mm -hmm. and there he will remain. And before he goes out the door, joining the Communist Party to the consternation of the remnant Communist Party, uh, this was an act of perversity, it was regarded, and in many ways it was. It was a kind of sticking his uh, finger into the nose of of the establishment, he said that capitalism, I have reached this conclusion, cannot reform itself. It is doomed to self-destruction. No philosophy that is based on selfishness can in the end survive long. So there's a long uh, distance to travel between 2000 and 1903 and 1961. And it's an uneven progression on Du Bois's part. After all, he is the uh, genius of the concept of uh, the talented 10th, mm -hmm. an elitist notion of special leadership of the mass of people, a mass of black people. Uh, he is, uh, uh, in his persona, uh, Edwardian, uh, he reflects his Germanic education at uh, the uh, University of Berlin and his New England upbringing uh, in the uh, uh, western hills of uh, Massachusetts in Great Barrington. Um, so that it's not immediately apparent that this man is going to become what he does become as he leaves. And it takes 16 books before uh, he thinks there is a logic that he can't resist. And it is that with so much promise and so much possibility, race cuts straight across the ability of the American public to do right by itself, not simply to black people, but because of that inability to most people. Mm -hmm. And so he saw that having said that the problem of the 20th century was the problem of the color line, Soon he realizes that that was simplistic, that the problem of the century, the 21st century, I'm sure if he were here, is the problem of the cash line, and that race is embedded in that. And so uh, he thought that the game was so rigged that uh, he virtually despaired and left to be useful to the developing world, where he thought 
that world of neutral powers and decolonized peoples, uh, there would be the promise for a kind of global sanity which the United States might catch up with. So there, there is an internationalism. I'm, I'm curious, both in um, the way in which you identify him as a kind of a talented 10th Marxist, um, and we know that this, his first entree into, or at least the, probably the most significant work of his Marxism was Black Reconstruction, uh, where he sees this agricultural army of black people in, in the language of a proletariat uh, and the promise of the populist movement as a, as a possibility for interracial alliance, which all crumbles uh, both in the midst of the racism that is unleashed uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, but also the way in which that story gets told um, with the Dunning School. So, I mean, you're capturing um, that moment in your own analysis of Du Bois's work in 1935, but you also tell a story that puts Du Bois outside of what is becoming the NAACP's desegregation strategy uh, because he becomes an economic nationalist right at a key moment. Um, and it seems that, that that moment of economic nationalism sets him up um, to revisit some of these larger questions about the nation states, the post-colonial world of Africa, where they should have self-determination and not be pawns in a geopolitical race between the Soviets and the United States. Uh, yes, quite so. Uh, <clears throat> his departure from the, the NAACP the first time, mm -hmm. uh, in roughly about 1934, if I remember right, uh, was a, a little messy, but uh, <clears throat> and it has kind of been uh, caricat caricatured as, uh, what do you know, a return to Booker T. Washington, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of uh, bootstrap economics. Uh, what is this, Dr. Du Bois? He didn't see it that way. He saw in the folds of the Great Depression that the only way for people of color to keep going and keep body and soul together would be with solidarity and with a cooperative movement. And he looked to the, uh, the Nordics, to Norway and Denmark and cooperative movements there, which he thought might in some way be applicable as a paradigm to black civil rights struggles. Uh, but he wrote uh, provocatively uh, two pieces in the journal that he founded, The Crisis, which I think in many ways invented investigative journalism. That could be a real PhD uh, for a student. Uh, in that uh, journal, uh, he wrote two uh, uh, pieces called Segregation, Separation, and Self-Respect, well, this, of course, was counter to the ideology of the NAACP, which was a, a, a profoundly integrationist, and so they said, you've got to go, and so he did. But really, he thought that the NAACP was not facing up to the exigencies of the Great Depression, and that economics must be uh, quite important, not litigation. Of course, the NAACP chose ultimately litigation, and as it were, um, um, it, it chose uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, and uh, Du Bois went off to uh, return to the academy to write Black Reconstruction. And the reason he did was he said, okay, um, I, I've stay, I started, I co-founded a civil rights movement. I gave it uh, its, uh, uh, its platform in this journal. Now let me go off and be more useful because uh, we're stillborn, he thought. Mm -hmm. And so there at Atlanta University of all places, uh, after a, an interesting uh, half year, 
traveling in the Soviet Union and saying, as did somebody else, that he had seen the future and the future works, he decided he'd better do the bibliography of Marx. He did, and Black Reconstruction uh, comes out. And you articulate very uh, uh, handily what it was all about. Now, whether or not you could conceive of uh, the bondsman as a proletariat is certainly questionable and, and even theological. Let's not go that way. But his point was the agency of the slave in self-liberation, the sort of activity that Eric Foner has uh, beautifully captured, uh, uh, piggybacking on Du Bois. Um, that, that was quite useful. Um, uh, the, 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 the need for land, labor, and, uh, and resources uh, was the essence of the reconstruction experiment. And it almost succeeded, but of course, the notion of white skin privilege comes and straight across the solidarity of poor whites and poor blacks, the uh, reconstruction movement fails. Uh, well, uh, but the important thing is, of course, I mean, this is just a sidebar, that that book, of course, will revise some of the most important historiography uh, that engages us. Black Reconstruction gives us our understanding today of what Black Reconstruction and the Civil War was about. Uh, uh, so that's a, that's a, that's a, a great contribution. But um, <clears throat> he returns to the NAACP uh, as a laureate, uh, appreciated uh, his scholarship now, relatively acknowledged, uh, in that curious way of, oh, Dr. Du Bois, he's really, he's really great. Uh, but um, it, there's a curious uh, hiatus between the uh, formal acknowledgement and his real influence. He becomes celebrated without, in fact, being, uh, uh, having uh, much uh, uh, impact on policy. And so when the invitation to return to the NAACP comes, he thinks, well, now I've kind of explained how important race and class and even gender are, how they interplay and what have you, and how we must be smart about So let me go back to the NAACP as the war ends and all the opportunities for global reform and democracy in our country uh, obtain and be quite useful. Uh, it's actually, uh, it's a really critical moment because it's, it's exactly the moment when the sort of universal principles, so Proskauer's Declaration of Human Rights is being drafted, mm -hmm. uh, the United Nations is being born, uh, there, there's Dumbart Oaks. Right, uh, all these Bois meetings. Is, is present at the founding of the United Nations, uh, making a nuisance of himself with the various delegations, uh, making sure that, the, that Madam uh, Pandit uh, appreciates that uh, the NAACP is there and uh, that um, the, the charter must have, must be explicit about racial rights. And of course, the Russians are quite happy to go along and say, yes, that's true. Uh, yes, he's there. Uh, and uh, that's an interesting chapter. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's not just an interesting chapter in the way that you tell it. It is also a critical moment for a set of choices that the mainstream of the civil rights movement, so we're still stuck with essentially the NAACP and the National Urban League. There's no SCLC. There's no SNCC. Um, and the choices are being defined in a way that is in direct response to incipient anti-communism um, that is beginning to spread, uh, both in a 
statutory sense, but mm. also in the minds of those who are beginning to look cockeyed um, at the Soviet Union. And Du Bois finds himself um, pursuing an internationalist agenda in a way that perhaps the civil rights movement itself is beginning to close ranks around patriotism, uh, beginning to... So tell us just tell us a little bit about that tension um, that is playing out literally in the office politics of the space that Du Bois occupies as he's pressing, 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 and Marshall is leading the troops in litigation around the University of Missouri and the University of Oklahoma, and yet Du Bois is saying, we need to look to the rest of the world. Yes, well, so, so that, that's the luxury of the intellectual, isn't it? That, uh, <laughs> so, look, we, we're finally moving ahead with some real victories in courts here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the desegregation of this and that rancid Southern University uh, and, and the professional schools and that, that's, that's where we need to go. Uh, and Du Bois has no uh, uh, objection to that, but uh, he but thinks... But it's small ball to him. Yes, it's, it's, it, ultimately it will be parochial, the, the, the victory will be. Uh, let, let me just go back and uh, say that Du the NACP, surprisingly, with a number of organizations, had appreciated the importance of an international agenda. Surprisingly, Walter White uh, had been quite outspoken about that initiative, and the NAACP board revealed itself as being rather perspicacious about about global rights, uh, and that in, uh, uh, enchanted Du Bois. Well, <clears throat> Cold War civil rights begins, and it begins really with when Winston Churchill. Um, drink, drinking uh, brandy as the train takes him to Fulton, Missouri, where he makes his Iron Curtain speech. Du Bois knew that this was the beginning of a new paradigm and that it would be lamentable. Uh, that, but a few years ago, the Soviet Union uh, had enabled the democracies to prevail over obscene uh, fascism. Uh, He knew that there was an opportunity uh, for social democracy uh, in this country, some degree of uh, government control and regulation of the economy, Mm -hmm. uh, that that was an option. But that very soon the NAACP recoiled uh, in the hot breath of the Cold War that Churchill had proclaimed. Uh, And within a very short period of time, uh, the NAACP uh, has uh, embraced uh, a parochial point of view. And with some regret that I even have to mention, uh, one uh, infelicity of a a man who is a very dear friend and uh, one whom I greatly admired, Arthur Schlesinger uh, wrote in uh, a major publication an alert that the civil rights movement uh, was in danger of, its, uh, of the tentacles of, I mean, of communism. And that had a tremendous impact. It frightened the bejeebies out of the board. Uh, and uh, so uh, uh, one, one African-American leader had said many years earlier, um, a. Philip Randolph said, it's a pretty hard thing to be black, 
uh, in America, but you sure can't be black and red. And the NAACP uh, <laughs> abided by that. So Cold War civil rights becomes the issue, and it's, it's exemplified, of course, as we know, in Harry Truman's uh, commission or committee mm -hmm. to fulfill uh, these to rights. To secure these rights, yes. To secure these rights, yeah. thank you. Uh, and what's important about that is it was a wonderful breakthrough. A president addresses from the Lincoln Memorial, uh, the NEACP. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, Cold War march on Washington, if, if you will. Uh, but Du Bois had uh, corralled the best and the brightest in the civil rights uh, community to prepare uh, uh, a, um, a, a document uh, which you may remember the name of. I'm, An Appeal. An Appeal. Is the short version of it, right? Yes. Uh, for uh, for which, human rights. Yeah. So. Human rights is economic rights. Mm -hmm. That's it, you know. Well, uh, when the White House uh, invitation to come uh, and sit down with Harry uh, and uh, uh, the result being to secure these rights, that went out the window. So then Du Bois says, for heaven's sake, where are we going? Where we are going is maybe to Henry Wallace. Mm -hmm. And so, though the NAACP... So Henry Wallace is third-party candidate in the 1948 election. He is the progressive standard bearer in this, in this moment. Former vice president of uh, the United States, of course, dropped by Franklin Roosevelt uh, because the party bosses uh, found him uh, electric uh, uh, in, in his radicalism. And he was a kind of strange guy, wasn't, wasn't Henry. Uh, he was the Howard Dean of Iowa. <laughs> or, or I should say of, uh, yeah, well, Iowa. Yeah, so Iowa. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, a, a, a genius in agronomy and that sort of thing. And the, the Wallace family uh, produced a journal that was, a, was gospel to, uh, to, to farmers. And, uh, but um, <clears throat> Wallace... Uh, uh, becomes the third party uh, candidate. And Du Bois joins. He violates the nonpartisan rule of the NAACP. He campaigns in High Harlem at, uh, uh, with, with Wallace. Uh, he is invited to give, indeed, the, uh, uh, the um, introductory statement at the Pro Progressive Party uh, conference uh, in uh, Philadelphia in July of 1940. Uh, and he propagandizes for Wallace, and of course, Wallace, who you would have thought had so much going for him. He was willing, unwilling to address segregated audiences in the South. Uh, he um, was, um, um, uh, he had written uh, he, an open letter to Joseph Stalin saying, why can't we avoid war? Why can't we have some sort of uh, settlement of our differences? And Stalin, in, uh, on the radio, the Russian radio, responded positively, which, drew, which threw the military-industrial complex that is a morning into a high tizzy. Uh, and so they said, this guy is really a, a communist creep. He loses, he even uh, gets fewer votes than Strom Thurmond's yeah. uh, Dixiecrats. Okay, it's a wipeout of progressivism in America. It, it really is. Uh, du Bois thought 1948 uh, was another turning point, pivotal in the way that 1896 had been when McKinley and the business community wiped out the, uh, uh, the, uh, the populist uh, movement. There's a lot to be criticized about the populist movement because, of course, it was both uh, racist and progressive. That's an American uh, specialty. <laughs> so, 
you would say, you would say, your generation, Khalil, would say, well, this guy, uh, these, these things are interesting, and, uh, uh, but uh, life is short. Organizations have to make progress. Uh, uh, progress comes in, uh, Incremental. in, in uh, incrementally. And so this intellectual uh, may serve uh, David Lewis later. Uh, as the basis for an interesting biography. Uh, but, but what use but, does but, he have in the world? Yeah, but really, uh, we, we did get, we're headed for Brown versus Board after all. And Du Bois says when Brown comes, well, the miracle happened, by George, he said. And then the next year, of course, he wrote, uh, what is the meaning of all deliberate speed? Just what on earth is that meaning? And it's, a, it's an interesting piece because he says all deliberate speed, in fact, began in 1808 when the importation of slaves was embargoed, but slavery is to continue. It began again in uh, 1876 mm -hmm. when Reconstruction was dismantled, and now again... Here we are, where the country comes to a moral choice, and it evades. And so there is uh, all deliberate speed is an oxymoron. Uh, well, we didn't think that, did we? Uh, my uh, family did not. Uh, we thought that uh, <clears throat> this was uh, a ground on which one could stand and fight, and uh, with uh, gains and losses, we would move ahead. But Du Bois predicted that the speed of the fulfillment of the Brown business uh, would be lamentable. And indeed, when you stand back and see that for until Montgomery and Martin Luther King, not much happens in the South, in the Confederacy. Actually, a lot happens in the opposite direction. In the opposite way, <laughs> indeed so. Entire public school districts shut down. Right, right. Uh, but in the positive way, no. Uh, he, saw, he, he foresaw that. So perhaps he was terribly relevant, mm -hmm. uh, even though uh, he was awkward. Um, also, uh, so this, is a, this is a good moment to bring King back into the story. Well, before I do, I'd like to bring, um, I'd, I'd like to bring Gunnar Myrdal mm -hmm. into yes. the story, because... Um, Du Bois is sort of two-track, isn't he? On the one hand, uh, he's a propagandist. Uh, he tries to uh, have some influence or organizationally. On the other hand, he never loses the conviction. He said, one of the first things he said was, when he got back from Germany uh, as a student uh, in 1896 or 7, right, picked up, finally picked up his PhD at Harvard because he couldn't get the the, uh, the uh, economics doctorate at, Heidel, at uh, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Universität, he said, the world is thinking wrong about race. It is thinking stupidly, and I want to instruct it. Mm -hmm. Now, he was young, and so that's... <laughs> that, Aren't that's, we all? That's just... <laughs> well, I'm not. <laughs> that's par for the course. Um, but... Uh, he was committed to scholarship, and so mm -hmm. um, the Philadelphia Negro, uh, for all of its uh, 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 problems, 
is really the paradigm of empirical scholar, uh, uh, sociology for the United States. Nothing like that had been done before. It had all been armchair. This business of empirical sociology, and he thought, that's going to have a real I impact. Got great reviews, and, and he got an invitation to some learned uh, uh, society uh, um, venues, but uh, didn't work out. So then he, he started uh, the Atlanta University Studies, and for 10 years, every year, a conference took place in Atlanta University to which all the smart progressives came. Um, um, 13 J volumes coming. Jane Addams yeah. and, and you name it, and they're all there. And every aspect of the black experience, the family, education, crime, uh, what have you, business, uh, uh, appeared in, 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 in publications. Uh, Max Weber writes, you know, this is wonderful stuff. I've got to come and uh, participate. Um, but <clears throat> by... Uh, 1900, um, the, uh, uh, by 1910, the academic achievement had not had a policy resonance. And because so, beliefs are often more powerful than facts. Say that again. I said because beliefs are often more powerful than facts. Beliefs are more powerful than facts, and, uh, and they, are, they have to be financed, and uh, there was a uh, uh, checkbooks were only open to another point of view that represented by, by Booker Washington. So what am I saying? So back in 19, uh, at the same time that he is uh, hoping that he can be influential uh, in the NAACP, or just before that, he thinks that a dream of his, the Encyclopedia of the Negro, uh, can be funded by the Rockefeller General Education Board and by the Carnegie Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation. Uh, now, he had good reason to think that that mightn't be welcome because he had written Andrew Carnegie way back in uh, 1905. And uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie had said, uh, I'll get back to you. Uh, and he did, and he said, um, I, I think this is not timely. Thank you very much. And that meant that Andrew Carnegie had, of course, consulted Booker Washington. Okay, so... Um, so, but he hopes that that can be done, and it looks like it can be done in 1936 and 37 and 38. And the foundations uh, provide some seed money, the Felt Stokes Fund, and because Du Bois won't say no to everything, he gets a global assent that this is a timely thing to do from German scholars, from British scholars, and what have you. Uh, so the foundations have to put up or shut up, and so uh, they don't. Uh, and to Du Bois's surprise, uh, a Swedish uh, politician and economist arrives at the Century Club, uh, and there uh, he uh, is. Uh, he accepts the uh, the commission to write uh, the American Dilemma, and there's a wonderful moment when I found in a, a box at Fisk University um, a uh, an exchange between. Uh, uh, Robert Maynard Hutchins, then the young president of the University of Chicago, and the head of the um, uh, Phelps Stokes, and the exchange, Maynard Hutchins says, Bob, what is this I hear about a big uh, sociological operation uh, being undertaken uh, in the Chrysler building with uh, all uh, something about a... Uh, 
uh, a, uh, uh, a volume on the Negro. And uh, the guy from the uh, Phelps Oak says, no, 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 it's not a volume. Uh, it, it is the major examination of American race relations that Du Bois had in mind, which we're now going to do uh, with uh, Gunnar Myrdal. Um, well, what does it matter? Uh, we, we need the examination. It was a, the American Dilemma. It's a magisterial work. We all know that. But <clears throat> it's, it has no economics in it, except in the appendices. There in the appendices, Gunnar, a, an economist. Europe's, uh, one of Europe's leading economists, puts all the stuff. But in the text, it's a psychological drama in which the race problem exists in the mind of the white man. And it is there a tension between his ideals and a sad reality. And it will be that tension that will finally lead to reform. It does. It leads to Brown versus Board and all deliberate speed. And so these are the things that Du Bois connects and sees and predicts, and that's why he seems irrelevant. He's not part of the American dilemma, although uh, Myrdal quite properly uh, compliments Dr. Du Bois on his, his influence and uh, 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 that sort of thing. So we're going to move uh, in just a moment. I, I want to share something about this um, in a quote that, that David has written. Uh, but I need to read the audience Q&A because we're almost at that time. Uh, we will be taking questions from the audience in a few minutes. Uh, if you would like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics. I feel like a flight attendant. Uh, before asking your question, please tell us your name. And out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, please ask one question. Two ah. staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. So you may begin to formulate your questions and shortly make your way to a mic. So in 1946, um, as a kind of uh, break in the action, in the volume, you pause to reflect on a moment where Du Bois is essentially going to return to the activist propagandist that he is, uh, because this window for the high achievement of the uh, encyclopedia has closed. Uh, American Dilemma has been published in 1944. And you describe the relationship between his commitment and passion to knowledge and his uh, dismay at uh, the fact that that knowledge really uh, was ineffective before a uh, set of ideas. So you say, he writes, but I misinterpreted, so this is Du Bois, I misinterpreted the age in which I lived. I knew that men were selfish, even cruel, thoughtless, and lazy, but I assumed that the ruling classes of earth wanted the right and followed the light once they saw it. It is a very dystopic view for someone who by that age was in his 80s um, and had tried every conceivable academic measure following the, in the most steadfast and disciplined ways, the rules of the game, only to land in this, this space, um, seeing essentially no way forward um, for achieving what he saw as the height of the production of knowledge about the black experience that might chart a pathway uh, forward. Am I overreading that moment? Uh, 
<clears throat> you know, there's a lot of drama in Du Bois. Uh, <laughs> Maybe so. There's there's a good bit of uh, of stage managing uh, of an issue. For example, we all remember that as a kid, a high school kid, he says up in Great Barrington, "I remember the moment when the veil of race fell upon me, and that I was different from the others." Well. <clears throat> um, he tells that story about three times, and it happens early and it happens late. And sure enough, being uh, a lonely, dark-skinned uh, kid uh, in a small town, you'd be sort of aware of, of, of an otherness factor. Uh, but there was no suddenness, but it's so effective. Why is my life like this? Because at that moment, the veil uh, falls. And so then you can have a whole narrative woven around the veil, that sort of thing, which he does. So drama. So he always needs literary devices. Is what uh, literary devices, indeed. And this may be, he can't have been that, uh, that, that naive after, after 80 years. Uh, but he is angry. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, what would have happened if um, when he left the NAACP, uh, having supported Henry Wallace, being and therefore being expelled, you make your way to the MCD. Uh, and Henry Wallace arranged for Du Bois to have a stipend uh, from Anita McCormick Blaine mm -hmm. of the McCormicks of Chicago in order to continue his scholarship. And he had a new platform, the Chicago Defender, uh, canceled his uh, column uh, in Red Scare uh, mode. But the National Guardian, uh, started up by progressives, and he writes there, uh, so maybe this will be a good thing. He's going to uh, continue to be a citizen who is also com uh, uh, problematic. And then what happens is that he's asked to be part of an institution uh, called the Council on African Affairs with Paul Robeson. Mm -hmm. And that brings him deeper into the left. The next thing you know, he's part of something called the Peace Information Council, which releases a peace gram in 1951 from the uh, Stockholm uh, Peace Appeal, which uh, has had garnered 1.5 million American signatures. Uh, uh, Duke Ellington's this name. Is in the midst of the Korean War. Well. Uh, right. right. Duke Ellington's Which name is, is, is on it. poses and also gets him in trouble. That's right. Okay. Uh, Ellington actually didn't sign it, but, but uh, that mistake was not remedied right away. Uh, okay. Uh, why shouldn't the Stockholm peace petition be discussed? Dean Acheson and Secretary of State uh, de de denounces this as a um, device uh, to undermine uh, 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 peace uh, and in quite condemnatory uh, terms in the New York uh, Times. And Du Bois rushes to the Times and the Sulzbergers allow him to attack uh, uh, Atchison. My God, have we reached the point, Mr. Secretary of State, where honest people wanting peace cannot distribute uh, the literature that will inform people and the next thing you know, he is indicted under the Smith Act uh, as, uh, as, as a communist uh, and brought to trial in Washington, D.C. Uh, in uh, February of 1951. Uh, Eisen, um, <clears throat> uh, Einstein, Albert Einstein, was to be 
a character witness for him. Uh, it became clear that the Justice Department had made a mistake, but after all, the man's indicted, they have to try him. Uh, so, and he gets a wonderful representation from Vito Marc Antonio. He represents the east side of uh, Harlem, Italians and Puerto Ricans, and he's been bounced. He's been bounced because he voted against the Korean War. Vito does a wonderful job, and Judge McGuire, realizing how absurd this was, says, uh, this is it, I'm ending the trial. Uh, so this is the only Cold War trial in which the victim is acquitted. Uh, imagine if Einstein had come uh, to testify. <laughs> I mean, so, um, well, you say, oh, this, one, this ends wonderfully well. Du Bois says, no, it doesn't, because it just shows how determined uh, the military-industrial complex is to uh, pre preclude any kind of democracy. Yeah. So it's not his fault, finally, that he has to fight these fights. And so then he writes in Battle for Peace, in which he says, I've reached this conclusion that people of color under the system of capitalism in the United States will always be at the bottom in the same way the people in the developing world will always be subordinated by the capitalist megalith. So uh, if that's the logic of it, I guess one leaves. Yeah, and that's what he did. And that's what he did. All right. Well, we may return to uh, some other themes in our Q&A. Thank you, David. Thank you. We're not done yet. <laughs> My name is Cynthia Moten, and I'm, I'd like to know uh, how much influence he had uh, on the emerging uh, African, newly independent African nations after he went to Africa. Yes, his influence is considerable. Uh, what? He is the founder uh, of the Pan-African movement. Uh, in uh, 19, uh, 1919, and uh, there are several meetings, global meetings, uh, bringing together uh, people who oppose uh, imperialism and people who are subjected to it. So Pan-Africanism is uh, his contribution, indeed, so much so that that's why he goes to Ghana, because Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who uh, visits uh, uh, well, the Schomburg, uh, Dr. Mohamed uh, Schomburg in 1940, when Du Bois convenes a conference there on the future decolonized world, uh, remembers and invites Du Bois to Ghana at, so that he can write, finally, with all the uh, resources he needs, uh, the Encyclopedia Africana. It's no longer the Encyclopedia of the Negro. So yes, it's, it's, a, it's a considerable influence to, along with uh, that of George Padmore, a younger man uh, who was in many ways a mentee. And he had been carrying this, uh, this Pan-Africanist movement forward since uh, the early 20th century when the first uh, Congress was held. Yes. 1919, right? 1919. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Pesinich, I'm a docent here. Uh, my question deals with the rise of Joseph Stalin and his dictatorial abuse of Russia. Did that do anything to dissuade Du Bois, du Bois of, of the lack of charm of communism? Uh, un unhappily not. Uh, as those of you who've uh, read uh, the second volume uh, know, uh, I was in, uh, invited as a guest of the Soviet Writers' Union uh, and uh, the KGB 
to interview uh, anyone I needed to, and I did. <clears throat> um, and one of the persons I spent time with was Ovid Gorchakov, who was a highly decorated uh, spy. Of the, he had grown up in Brooklyn and, and that sort of thing. And then during World War II, he became one of Stalin's uh, uh, junior people. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I get there in High Gorbachev. And uh, Ovid says, you know, David, uh, your man... Uh, could not be inveigled to criticize Stalin. Uh, he said, he was like Sir Stafford Cripps. They wouldn't do that. And he said, I took him one day to um, Parveka, and we walked through a cemetery of the fallen, but it's off limits to their widows. They can't come. Uh, I think it's terrible. What do you think? And Du Bois said, there must be a reason for this. Well, the point was, Du Bois, and I think we must condemn him for it, uh, it's not fair, it's not right, but he was not ever going to be quoted as saying something that would allow uh, the, his own country's uh, um, infelicities yeah. to, uh, to get off the hook. Once he says something about Stalin, then they'll say, okay, even Du Bois recognizes that we're pretty good. Uh, he even sends Stalin a birthday greeting just uh, before he dies. Um, this is pretty tawdry stuff, I, I do find, uh, as I find uh, his trip to uh, Nazi Germany uh, on a fellowship in 1936 uh, quite curious, just as I do uh, discover that he was financed by Japanese intelligence for this remarkable trip he made to Japan. Uh, in that, that same year, uh, where he was feted by Japanese uh, cultural um, institutions. Um, but from his point of view, uh, we're talking about 300 years of slavery. We're talking about uh, centuries of uh, fratricide amongst Europeans. Uh, we're talking about the injustices of economic systems. So... Uh, he always thought that what was terrible in one case had to be contextualized with what had been historically uh, terrible. Uh, now, that may be an intellectual uh, Jesuitery, uh, but it's still uh, really uh, not uh, uh, something that disturbs uh, a biographer. Thank you. I, my name is Peter Goodman. Uh, back in the early 60s, as a new teacher, I worked with Bayard Rustin on a number of projects. Uh, a socialist, a strong trade unionist. Uh, did the boys have any influence on uh, Bayard Rustin's life, and did they interact much? I'm sure that th th they did, because Du Bois has an influence on just about everybody who's sentient uh, in <laughs> civil rights. Uh, but I, 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 don't I didn't find any particular uh, uh, closeness there. Um, uh, and again, I think gener the generational uh, distance may have uh, been at... Uh, at play there. There's Although, of course, um, um, well, yes, I won't say anymore. <clears throat> there's actually, an, I mean, from the biographer, from the biography, there's a, there is a noticeable distance that Du Bois has to most of the major players that we know, even though he lives up to the March on Washington. Um, he leaves the United States, of course, but he's, he's certainly there. He's there. He's just, he's looking elsewhere for the future. Um, Ray Franklin, 
Du Bois had a big influence on me, but not in his later years. Oh, and not in his later years. Later years. Um, <laughs> big influence. Uh, I was, um, the question relates to Du Bois' com off-quoted comment that he lives in two worlds, the white world, the black world, and it's always often very ambiguous. John Hope Franklin complained often that he was re always referred to as a black historian, even though a lot of his work had nothing to do with blacks. There was a very uh, serious um, statistician at University of California at Berkeley who uh, always referred to as a black statistician, although nothing had to do uh, in his work with anything of ethnic or race. My question is, um, are these compliments or are these exceptions? Uh, uh, that is, what is the motivation uh, behind introducing someone as a black something or an exceptional something? It's very ambiguous to me. I'd like to hear your comments. So the question is? Well, the question starts with the notion of double consciousness and the trading on whether one is an American or a Negro. Oh, and I see. He's, he's asking the question uh, to claim. The, famous, the, the yeah. famous dichotomy introduced by Du Bois, is that? Uh, yeah, but it, it extends to a more yes. contemporaneous conversation about whether people, it's a compliment to say they're a black historian versus a historian who happens to be black, mm. which yeah. is something that John Hope Franklin apparently spoke to. No one introduces to. me as a white economist. Yes, well, um, <clears throat> I don't know. Sometimes you, you, you want to be uh, black. It's, uh, it's useful or Jewish. And some, sometimes, it's n sometimes it's not. Um, uh, you, but you, but you're, you're on to something, and that is that we, we, we had an election in, uh, uh, in 2008 which was post-racial, remember? Uh, we, uh, we, we, I, I wrote a... Um, uh, a, an op-ed and sent it to the Times and uh, uh, they said we Wasn't don't need it enough. and I uh, sent it to the Post, don't need it and then I had dinner with Julian Bond and he said, David, I also did that and I was told that uh, this was not an op-ed that was timely. Uh, uh, we're post-racial now uh, <laughs> and even I wanted to believe that we were uh, surfing down that that incline. Um, <clears throat> well, we, 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 but we are, you see, because we find that we aren't post-racial and that we are profoundly racial, racialized. We are. Some of us are on the right side, some of the left side. These Tea Party people are not, uh, are not special at all. They are simply candid. Uh, and, <laughs> and this is, one would hope, therapeutic, for heaven's sake. I mean, uh, the point is, with all the insufficiencies of, uh, of Barack Obama, he is not the most adroit uh, 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 politician, it seems. Uh, but uh, even if he were far better at being a politician, which he doesn't seem to be, uh, it wouldn't really change, I think, the opposition. Uh, it is, he is, uh, uh, as Mr. Dunn says, uh, there's thug music everywhere. And, uh, even in the White House. Even in the uh, White House. So this is, this is um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's creepy, but it's, it's there. And the, uh, when we come to the election this year, by election, why the, the republic is teetering. I mean, uh, we're likely to uh, have total paralysis, or we're likely really to shift over into 
a right-wingedness. Uh, so, and this is because of race. But it's because of race which has to do with economics. We've got 11 million people who came to us because we were too lazy to do our own work. Uh, and now, like, say, the Turks in Germany uh, who didn't go home, these people are Americans. Uh, but uh, how, do, how do we deal with, deal with it? Because they didn't, they didn't come from Ellis Island and they didn't sign all the papers and that sort of thing. And so there you are. Um, so, so we're in a wonderful moment. And Du Bois, if he were here, he would say, now I can finally write some more. Because, uh, because I, what I said was the problem would be the problem of the color line. What it is is that uh, the rich are able to construct our debates in such ways that we never get to the issue. So we are almost out of time, but I recognize, and I'm going to defer um, to the hosts. So something that we try to do when we come to this point is at least let everyone get their question out. And then we'll see where the chips fall. So state your question, and then the next person goes. I believe we're here, and then we won't answer, or David won't answer, until we've heard all the questions. Uh, I'm Renee McLean. Um, my name is Renee McLean. Um, in his book, Lawrence Golson writes, in his book, Separate and Unequal, he revealed that, that Booker T. Washington was surreptitiously involved in actually financing the, the, um, the litigation for the Plessy case, while at the same time articulating a different message to Americans, black and white, mm -hmm. at that time, about the role and the relationship of black Americans to white Americans. So my question was, what was Washington's thought, what was Du Bois's thoughts over the Plessy case and how it was being handled? Because Washington was very open, I mean, he was, I mean, he was, he was open about certain things, but again, being very undercover about others. But what was Du Bois's position? Well, th th there we have a generational uh, consideration. I got it. Hold it. Okay. Can I get the questions up? <laughs> next, next question. Thank you. My name is Nancy Lane. The first question that you raised was, what prompted you to do the biography on uh, Dr. Du Bois? And I wonder, Dr. Lewis, if you would share with this audience your first experience meeting Dr. Du Bois. Okay. Okay. This is Nancy Lane, a, a dear friend. <laughs> All right, we're here, and then last question. Yes. Uh, my name is Steve Unger. I wanted uh, to thank you for writing the biography, which is wonderfully enlightening. My question has to do with uh, your craft and technique, and what would you say were your main challenges in writing the biography? Okay, that's a great question. And finally, Ron. Okay, my name is Ron Howell, and I wanna, do want to say what an honor it is to be here with you. I uh, feel that very deeply. I happen to be reading recently uh, The Future of the Race uh, by Henry Louis Gates and Cornel West. Um, it was this week, and there's a, um, something here that I um, made a copy of from Cornel West uh, about Dr. Uh, du Bois. It says, uh, there seemed to be something in him that alienated ordinary black people. In short, he was reluctant to learn fundamental lessons about life and about himself from them. 
Such lessons would have required that he, at least momentarily, believe that they were or might be as wise, insightful, and advanced as he. And this he could not do. All right. So you take it away. We're in lightning round. Uh, the, yes. the cameras well, are going to turn off any moment. Uh, the first question was uh, Plessy, Plessy Ferguson. And, the question, and right. Uh, you know, <clears throat> my old professor, August Meyer, uh, it was who uh, uncovered the uh, specifics of the Booker uh, financing of some civil rights activities. Uh, but I wasn't aware that Booker had uh, financed, uh, uh, been involved in Plessy. Uh, but um, uh, the, the point was that uh, he, it had to be covert and it didn't do, it didn't do any good. Uh, that is, each, uh, each southern state revised its constitution and uh, eliminated black people. Uh, and, uh, and, but Booker had... Uh, paid some money for that. Um, but uh, on Plessy, uh, it, it's awkward because Du Bois had uh, just returned from Germany and he actually wrote uh, to uh, uh, Booker Washington saying a word well spent, uh, spoken or fitly spoken, that is the, uh, the, uh, the famous address of, uh, of Booker Washington at the Atlanta and Cotton States Exposition. Du Bois had for a time the belief that the vote is not to be for everybody, but only those who uh, uh, deserve it, who are competent citizens. Uh, it was an aristocratic view, which uh, he outgrew. Uh, but it was the Victorian age. Hmm? It certainly was. I mean, he was born, he came of age in the Victorian age. That's right. The, the, the right to vote is uh, the right that uh, those who uh, have um, uh, citizenship uh, caliber. Uh, on uh, Cornell and uh, West and, uh, <clears throat> and Mr. Gates, um, I, I think it's true that, uh, in fact, the mention of John Hope Franklin, I thought the gentleman was going to say that John Hope Franklin uh, always found Du Bois impossibly starchy, uh, even though uh, John was with him through the Cold War period when others like Margaret Mead uh, 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 fell away. Uh, but he was that, yes. In part, he was somewhat shy. Um, uh, and then, too, I think he had a kind of uniqueness uh, complex that was legitimate. I mean, you cannot be that smart and that emblematic any longer. Uh, there aren't a lot of black people or a lot of anybody who, have, who had his education. Uh, and so he bore the responsibility and the pride of that uh, rather austerely, it's true. But uh, it is true, however, that women did not find uh, him uh, starchy uh, <laughs> a, a, at all. And, and so I would say, and he was a great feminist, was he not? It, it, philosophically, philosophically, uh, he was. Um, so, yeah, he, he was not perfect. Okay, so we're going to end with a comment on how you, uh, your writing technique and then a story about meeting Du Bois. Writing technique, well, um, <clears throat> it's uh, not uh, a mystery. Uh, you just uh, sit down and, 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 you, and you write, uh, which, which means that um, it's important enough to you to not do lots of other things that most people are enjoying. Uh, and you, you hope that the rewards are going to be that you'll then be able to enjoy yourself when they are still, 
having having uh, their challenges. Um, it's uh, it, it's uh, but but then there is nothing like research uh, if if you get the addiction to it. Uh, and I do worry now that I'm uh, on a book now that. Uh, uh, entails a, a lot, lot of research, but it's so easy now. One, I have a very smart research assistant who understands the technology. Oh, it's a little easier. Uh, okay, but but I don't need to travel to uh, Amherst and stay there in the cold. Uh, I can actually get the shelf lists, and really, they'll send me the stuff, and I can read it digitized. So that's uh, that changes things a bit, and uh, uh, and I welcome it, uh, but either as digits or as boxes, uh, research is, uh, uh, is an aphrodisiac. Uh, and uh, if you, uh, uh, the one thing I, I, I would say though is that uh, 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 Christoph had uh, a piece the other day in the Times, which was, I thought, not very helpful, but he, he did- When are they? He, he did say that uh, it's a pity that smart people who know stuff uh, aren't known about better, and so they ought you know, make themselves known. Well, yes and no. But if you write well, uh, you can have a shot at being, at being read. And if you've done the research and then you do the, the writing and you do it accessibly, then I think you will have, have, have served the cause well. But uh, we don't all have to be public intellectuals, uh, no, because that loses something. We... Uh, uh, even though history is in bad shape these days, in terms of jobs and all that sort of stuff, and the whole business of taking seven years to do a PhD to write something only your mother cannot read, does not uh, <laughs> does not seem to advance things. But uh, that's not new. Okay, and uh, oh, so we are we are out of time. So if you can tell in forty five seconds. In forty five seconds, yeah. Um, one of the things I did not say is that I am a talented 10th uh, product. My uh, father was a, a friend of uh, Du Bois's, and so uh, in the summer of 1940, I think it was, when I was seven years old or six years old, no, I wasn't, even something like that, uh, there was a, uh, a, a big meeting of the Boule, which is the, uh, the Sigma Pi Phi, the, the Black 400, all the presidents and doctors, lawyers, teachers, and whatever. And Du Bois was to speak there. And I was with my father walking to the, across the campus, and Dr. Du Bois approached, and my father introduced me uh, to Dr. Du Bois. And he looked down at me, and he said, what are you going to do with your life? <laughs> so um, I have an answer. <laughs>